Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Daniel Foch. I am joined here by the one and only, the lovely Nick Hill. Wow, quite the introduction. I really appreciate that, Dan. Lovely is unfortunately not going to be the vibe of the episode today. Really hard to find some good news out there. And this is an episode where we focus on news. I certainly hate to be the bad news bears. Also did the term of bearishness. I guess we did a history on that, but I feel like it's very coincidental that it's bad news and bears. But anyway, yeah. probably the only good news right now. And I don't even know if it's good news because I don't run an interest rate desk and I'm in no way qualified to make bond yield forecast, but the Canada five-year government bond is trending down. And I think it actually broke below 3% today, December 8th. And it closed a little bit lower than where it is. And and the US 10-year bond yield is trending down and closed at just shy of 3.5%. And so people who are smarter than me who do talk about interest rates and bond yield forecasting are alluding to this potentially leading to some easing on the long-term rate side. So fixed rates in the Canadian market and especially long-term fixed rates in the US market. So potentially that's you know a little bit of good news that could ease some of the economic pain that we're seeing. Those rates, you know, ending in the five percent range still double or triple some of the rates that we saw earlier this year. But nonetheless, maybe a signal that some of the pain is coming to an end here. Yeah, look, I mean, we'll take the good news where we can get it these days. Because what I want to do is I want to start this episode out with a familiar story that we're seeing across the country right now. And I'm sure you, our listeners, can relate. And if not directly, you probably know someone that bought a property in the last two years. Whether that was an investment property, your first condo, or your forever home, you might have bought this with a variable rate because who wouldn't? Rates were so damn cheap, it seemed crazy not to. And they also made it easier for you to get more borrowing power, so more money. You were probably a little nervous because these are major decisions, but I'm sure you felt more comfortable when the leader of our central bank, Tiff Macklin, said this. If you've got a mortgage or if you're considering making a major purchase or you're a business and you're considering making an investment, you can be confident rates will be low for a long time. Macklem said at a 2020 news conference while announcing rates would remain unchanged at 0.25%. I honestly feel be- bad even like reading that one because I don't <laughs> want people. To, I don't want people to think that I said it. Well, I obviously I wasn't going to read that one. I had to I had to give that one to you. That is not a Dan Foch original. That is a Tiff Macklem original. Yeah, you know what? Like I've ragged on this guy a lot for for that statement. I think it was a little bit irresponsible, <laughs> and that's an understatement. But the reality is here, like, there's this principle called caveat emptor. You'll hear about it a lot in the real estate industry. It's that, you know, let the buyer beware is what it means. I think it actually legitimately is Latin. Love it. Of it's course the it prin- is. <laughs> yeah, it's the principle that the buyer alone is responsible for checking the quality and suitability of goods before a purchase is made. And by no means would this excuse some of the, you know, insanely lofty claims that have been made by mortgage and real estate professionals over the past couple of years. But there should be a little bit of onus on the buyer to, you know, again, 
determine, and, and I think that this statement especially says, okay, should we be extremely trusting of professionals? Should we be extremely trusting of the government or Bank of Canada governor? Should we make decisions exclusively based on what they're telling me? And I think that the trust factor is is kind of gone now for all the real estate profession, <laughs> the central banks. I think that they, a lot of these individuals have lost a lot of credibility. I think government credibility is is waning as well. But humans have very short memories. We tend to forget these kind of things in a couple yeah. of years. So put us back in a bull run and we'll be eager to trust anybody probably. Exactly. So again, going back to this story, it applies to not only the people that took those low variable rates at the max they could afford in the last two years before this rate hiking cycle started, but it also is going to affect the people that bought three to four years ago before the pandemic was even a thing. These people that were the risk adverse people settling into a fixed mortgage. Now, those people also enjoyed lower rates back then, talking about four years ago, let's say, but they will experience just as much pain as that of the variable rate holders when they come to renew their mortgage in the next six months, year, year and a half, because it's going to be at a much higher rate. So there's really no way of escaping this. Yeah, I mean, maybe the only people who would escape it are the ones who took a 10-year mortgage at, at record low emergency rates, which are, is a very rare mortgage product in Canada, but it is available. Interest rate hikes can take a long time to work their way into the economy. This is, is likely to be a slow burn. Things probably have to get worse before they get better. Will we see more pain? Yeah, probably. Are we almost on this hiking cycle? Hopefully, but does that matter? I mean, probably not because... Not all interest rates are based on the Bank of Canada. A lot of them are based on those bond yields I mentioned earlier. Exactly. And there's other factors that we'll get into. But before that, let's go back to the basics. Let's talk some numbers here. 420, a number often associated with a certain day in April where a certain legal recreational substance is consumed by Canadians. Hint, hint, 425, or rather 4.25 is the new overnight rate set by the Bank of Canada with their latest rate hike of 0.5 basis points. Two numbers very close together have absolutely nothing to do with one another, but I can tell you the grass is really greener on one of those sides. Sorry for oh, horrible dad joke right there. Great, great joke. You're going to have to check if you have any kids running around after a dad joke like that. <laughs> Would have certainly appeased Wall Street bets if Powell or Tiff made the Fed funds or overnight oh, rate that would have been four, memes. 420. It would have been great. On that note, let's talk about interest rates. Yeah. So now remember, there are two different things we're going to be referencing. There's the overnight rate, which is set by the bank, and that was raised to 4.25%. That overnight rate directly impacts the prime rate, which we see all the major banks abide by, and that is now at 6.45%. So by the afternoon of December 7th, Canada's big banks had announced a half point increase to their prime rates, some correlation there, bringing them to a 15-year high of 6.45%. Wow. And if you actually rewind this all the way back to episode one of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast, and remember when we were talking about those two iterations of the 1981 and 1989 housing market cycles, we talked a lot about the magnitude of increases, and there was a doubling and a tripling of the prime rate. And we are now into that territory, right? Effective Thursday, December 8th. This will increase borrowing costs once again for those with a variable rate mortgage or a home equity line of credit. And also, very important to note, land loans are prime plus 
financing. And so your development pipeline is feeling that burn a little bit as well. Yeah, good call. And that that actually ties in well with the last segment, which is about construction and permits and, and some of the issues we're seeing there. So stick around for that. But the general rule of thumb is that for every 0.5 or 50 basis point increase, monthly mortgage payments increase about $25 per $100,000 of debt based off of a 25-year AM. So with 400 bips of cumulative rate increases so far just this year, variable rate borrowers are now facing a roughly $200 higher monthly payments on $100,000 of debt. So that's a pretty big difference than we had at the beginning of the year. And I can tell you people are feeling it. Yeah, for sure. According to a recent report from National Bank, affordability deteriorated for the 11th consecutive quarter in Q3. And it's interesting because the first several quarters of that or the first like it was just literally price increases. And now we're not in a price increasing environment, but affordability is still decreasing. It's reaching levels not seen since the early 1980s. As a result, the mortgage on a representative home in Canada now takes 67.3% of income to service. Remember when we talked about what's considered affordable household income or income towards a housing expense? 30% is what CMHC would advise that people should be spending for housing to be considered affordable. More More than than double double at this point. Craziness. More than double household income to service. The most since 1981, the report's authors wrote. Previous Canadian home sale corrections. Dun, dun, dun. And again, if you want like an exhaustive look at this, take a look at episode one, go all the way back and then just like maybe accidentally leave it playing. So it just plays through every episode. <laughs> 1981 to 1982, minus 33%. But yeah, 1989 to 1990, another minus 33%. 2008 to 2009 was minus 38%. And then just recently in 2016 to 2018, we did see a drop of 20%. And as Dan said, that is our first episode, how Canadian real estate performs in a rising rate environment. We did a full episode covering each one of these. I think that's volume, Nick. I don't think that's, they say home sale, not home price. So just oh, so sorry. everybody's listening is aware. Yeah. I know it's all good, but uh, I just saw home. No, I read the title there. It says previous Canadian home sale corrections. And it is, that's that would be volume. Cause I know in 08, 09, there was definitely not a 38% drop in price. So the numbers we just read were number of sales decreased by that amount. And actually, I think that's an important distinction before you jump in here on the next piece, Nick. One of the things, if you go through the Canadian Real Estate Association and look at national sa- home sales volume, Canadians respond to uncertainty by pausing major purchase decisions. And so you can look at every major correction in the past and see volume drops off. Eventually, it rebounds in a major way, but it drops off. And so we see this pause and reflect moment for Canadians. Anyway. Yeah, I love that. And that's that's a great segue into kind of my next question here is that, you know, what is this doing to sentiment and to economical behavior among Canadians? Because we've heard this term, you know, sitting on the sidelines, waiting to time the market, all of these things. And we've had this discussion on the podcast before, right? It's almost chicken in the egg. You know, how much of an effect does sentiment have on the economy? And then how much of an effect does the economy have on sentiment and vice versa? Yeah, and it does become like almost like a very cyclical effect, right? Now that the spread between fixed and variable rates has largely evaporated, a majority of borrowers are once again going towards that fixed rate environment into that world of certainty. As of August, 44.2% of new mortgage borrowers chose a variable rate down from peak of 56.9% in January. 
according to the Fall Residential Mortgage Industry Report published by CMHC, who we've mentioned on our last episode. Good old CMHC. The shift coincides with the Bank of Canada's rate hike, which started in March and has progressively made variable rate mortgages much more expensive. We all know a share of variable rate mortgages falling to 39% of new originations. That's the lowest we've seen since April of 2021. Now, the spread between variable and fixed has been trending downward after peaking in the first quarter, says the CMHC report. Consequently, consumers prefer variable for they have decreased. Statistics Canada figures also reveal mortgage borrowers are increasingly favoring shorter fixed terms as opposed to a traditional five-year fixed. For new mortgages originated as by of September by Canada's charter banks, just 16% had a five-year fixed versus 40% that had one four years ago. Now, quick anecdote for me, this is you know, I'm in the mortgage space. This is the stuff I do every day. And I can tell you right now, this is the advice that we are giving. If you are looking to get a mortgage, it's a pretty good idea to be looking at a shorter fixed term at this point. Yeah, I think definitely exploring the options. Like at this point, I mean, the best advice you can give somebody is to really analyze the full spectrum and just give as much information as you possibly can rather than advice. I think a lot of people are making decision on limited information. And that's the challenge. And that's one of the things that's why we're doing this podcast. It's literally like the reason we're doing it. Give you as much information as you can to make an informed decision. We don't know what the best decision is for you, but we know that it requires a lot of information to make it. So exactly. Do you want to jump in on the CMHC report? Yeah, just a couple of other highlights from from this report. You know, CMHC puts out a ton of great stuff. So mortgage originations in Q1 and Q2 of this year are down from the same period last year in all categories, including purchases, refinances, renewals, but they did remain above 2020 origination levels. Yeah. And I don't know how good a comp 2020 is given- Definitely not a good a comp. Lot of, yeah, yeah. So delinquency rates for credit cards, lines of credit, and auto loans in Q3 were higher for consumers without a mortgage. So 1.69, 0.66, and 3.04% respectively. Compared to a consumer's with a mortgage, 0.49, 0.19, and 0.31% respectively. Approval rates for both home purchases at 71.3% and refinances at 85.6% were down slightly in Q2 from a peak reached in Q4 of 2021. They both remain above pre-pandemic levels, however. Among mortgage borrowers at alternative lenders, a smaller percentage were able to switch to a conventional lender in Q3, 67% compared to Q2, which was 70%, and Q1, which is 72%. So you're seeing a tightening of credit. And and this is going to be ver- verified by anecdote. We're hearing a lot about lenders tightening the amount of loans that they're willing to give out. And you do hear about this a little bit at the end of the year as well. Lenders, credit unions, B-side lenders, private lenders just kind of tapped out towards the end of the year. But So it's, it'll take until probably Q2, Q3 of next year to w- determine whether or not this is an alarming trend or just cyclicality. Right. It's that slow burn we were talking about earlier, right? This stuff takes a while. You don't just raise an interest rate and things change immediately. Yeah, I think actually, even on that note, like, you know, it takes 90 days just for a mortgage to become delinquent in Canada. So there could be a lot of looming delinquencies that we don't even know about. And then after that, you know, sort of what really is kind of that that final nail in the coffin is someone's delinquent, they're in arrears, and they get the asset taken away. So we hear about power of sales or foreclosures. When those start to happen, that that process also takes, you know, can take months 
to get the legal set up to take properties in the power of sale. So it's it's not something that's just going to... Not like the US where banks just can start or people can just hand their keys in and walk away from their property. Give us the next headline here, Nick. Yeah, we're going to move on to an article here from Better Dwelling, a wonderful media outlet that actually both Dan and I have contributed to. This article reads, Canadian real estate correction expected to continue into 2023, according to RBC. Canada's real estate market might be showing some moderation of activity, but it's still correcting. Sales activity is still below pre-pandemic levels, and prices are still falling in regions with outsized gains. Canada's housing markets are still squarely in correction mode, explained Robert Hogue, the assistant chief economist at RBC. That guy probably knows a thing or two, eh? Definitely. However, the correction has been mixed, explained Hogue. Markets with outsized gains have seen activity grind to a halt. This includes Vancouver, Fraser Valley, Toronto, Hamilton, Ottawa, and Montreal. Meanwhile, the prairies have seen a notable exception. Calgary and Edmonton are both seeing activity above pre-pandemic levels. The bank attributes stronger, stronger provincial economies, and this is a huge theme when we were doing our Calgary events. I'm glad I made this call correctly. Stronger provincial economies and rising immigration as reasons behind the boosted demand. Yeah, now we'll reference this later on, but we, we go into a deep dive on the Alberta episode that we did. So back to the article, the sales to new listing ratio, otherwise known as SNLR, is one method used to determine if markets are hot or not. Most of the major markets that have reported now fall within the balanced territory. Though it's important to remember that balanced is sometimes just as a stop as regions move toward a buyer's or seller's market, right? So it's just a stop on the road to where you actually get to a buyer's or seller's market. And November and December are also months where few people sell, right? Dan, you know this. I know this. We see this. This happens every year. Things just get a bit slower around this time. Now, this can be deceptive appearing to create the impression of stabilization, but it may or may not be reflective of the actual market conditions. With that said, Canada's markets are now printing balanced sales to new listings ratio in the early data. RBC found Vancouver, Edmonton, and Montreal were all smack in the middle of balanced market territory. Fraser Valley is a buyer's market where prices tend to see an accelerated erosion or decline. Toronto is right on the border of a balanced and buyer's market. They'll ask a decent agent. I don't know any of those. And they'll <laughs> likely say it feels more like a buyer's market. I'd say so. You know, the one major exception to this trend is Calgary. Calgary. Yeah. <laughs> the sales to new listing ratio is a scorching hot 86% in November. The oil boom, relatively affordable pricing, and an inflow of young adults has resulted in a significant demand and has led to much of the increase in listings that we see. So let's chat about this for a second, Dan, because it's kind of crazy that, you know, we just came back from Calgary. We've been bullish on Alberta since day one. And now, we, you know, we see the starting lineup, Vancouver, Montreal, Edmonton, Ottawa, Hamilton. We see the starting lineup of Canadian cities there. And a lot of them are, are not in great shape other than Edmonton and Calgary. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. Like, and I admitted to, you know, 
most of our listeners that came to the events. And we said it in the deep dive. Like, I don't think that they're fully price protected, but they are less credit dependent. I think Calgary already saw a little bit of a recoil in price, Edmonton, not so much. But the reality is, you know, you're in markets where people aren't going to jumping into variable rate mortgages because they have to just in order to qualify, they have to go exactly. to this, they have to circumvent the stress test. You're in markets where prices aren't climbing so much that people have to stack on, pile on more and more debt so that now all of a sudden, if prices or if interest rates go up, their borrowing power is being erased. Like most people, you know, we the, the fundamentals are way stronger in markets, in, in tertiary markets in Canada, Calgary, Edmonton, Saskatoon, Regina, much of the Atlantic Canada, much of Quebec outside of Montreal. And so places where price to income is good, where rent to income is good, where income to rent is good, tenants can afford places, regular Joes can afford to buy homes. These are what are going to support the floor, the establish the stronger price floor. Toronto, Vancouver, you know, a lot of these areas that we're hearing about, they're fully detached from those fundamentals. Those like those don't exist. And so they're going to start getting closer to those fundamentals. And a lot of people are saying, oh, the fundamental is immigration. It's like, that's cool. But immigrants still need money to buy houses in those. And so they need to borrow money and they need jobs to pay their mortgages. And if those jobs aren't paying well enough and the credit is too expensive, then something needs to change in that equation. And credit's not getting cheaper and wages are clearly not going up because the Bank of Canada as one of their policy objectives, has made it very clear that they do not want to see wage inflation. That's so mean of them. The Bank of Canada really did steal Christmas this year. I want to use this as a segue to the next article because I, you know, I think it's you'll, you're going to be surprised to hear this. And I thought it was kind of crazy because based off the population in Ontario, you would think it had the most landlords. Or based off of everything we just spoke about, the Alberta deep dive episode, all the research that we've done about Alberta and the investing opportunities that are there, you think they may have the most landlords. Well, if you thought either of those things, you may be wrong according to this article titled, Vancouver Leads the Country in Mom and Pop Landlords. And this is by the Global Mail. So fairly reputable source. Yeah, so their source is also Stats Canada, which is an extremely reputable source. So recently released statistics show that Vancouver has the highest percentage of mom and pop landlords in Canada, which may not come as a surprise to anyone with a mortgage to cover. Statistics Canada said 11.2% of Vancouver homeowners reported income from a rental unit. In 2020, 7.9% of Canadian households overall reported rental income. The data only includes small landlords, not trusts and corporations that manage buildings. And I will say that I actually don't know if this is necessarily data that there's more landlords in Vancouver. I actually just think that Vancouverites, is that how you say it, Nick? I know I don't want to offend any Vancouverites here. <laughs> Too late. Is that what it is? I don't know. Yes, I think such so. such a bad Vancouverite. I'm a Torontonian now, but my heart still is in Vancouver. So... It just tells me that people from Vancouver are the most honest people in Canada because I would argue that rental income is the most underreported type of income and maybe tips, but I think rental income is probably up there in, in the top five of underreported income streams in Canada. And so I think people in Vancouver is more likely maybe to, to report that income. Maybe there's a reason for that that I don't know about policy, tax, It's all the good West Coast vibes, you know, the yoga, the granola, the, out, the fresh outdoor air. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or it could be it's taxed very low. Like there could be something I'm missing here as to why they would do that. But I think that, you know, it would surprise me if it was the highest concentration of landlords or Same. per capita landlords in, in the country. But an interesting data point regardless. Yeah. Anyway, 
I digress, as is tradition. Back to the report here. So the growth in rental income from small family-owned properties coincided with low interest rates, which enabled people to buy these second investment properties or homes or build a suite in their home. The most common of these property owners who observed, who some observers have called artisan landlords, that's that's nice, are couples living in big cities. Very interesting. Close to half of these couples are between 45 and 64 years old, and two out of three earn a regular income as well as an income from their rental. Yeah. So it's actually kind of interesting because I, I was looking it up trying to figure this out. Why? Like, I'm I'm so curious now as to why it's happening. And I actually found that there's a... So rental income generated by a property falls into a couple of different tax categories. If rental is active business income, for it could qualify for a small business tax deduction. It would be taxed at a lower rate. So maybe because it's more tax friendly there for rental income, people are more likely to claim it. Anyway, it was surprising for me to see them take the lead in mom and pop landlords strictly because prices there are crazy. Maybe it's a house hacking thing. Like it's desperation. People have to do it to afford it. But anyway, my wheels are turning trying to figure out what it is. So we might have to go do a deep dive on that when we're out in Vancouver come April. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Ooh, I like it. Okay. Yeah, I totally agreed. I actually do think that probably the majority of them were building that second suite, having someone live, move into the basement, whatever it is. But anyways, We'll save that for an episode. Yeah, it could also demonstrate the effectiveness of policy, like for laneway houses, second suites. Very know, maybe good municipal point. policy policy is is really encouraging people to add suites. One last thing, and I know I keep getting so off topic here, but uh, <laughs> I just did a, a thing for CBC Vancouver. Actually, it was CBC Vancouver, but it's the national piece, and they wanted to know about whether or not there was an impact on housing prices as a result of the foreign ownership tax. Vancouver being a really hot hot market for foreign investment. And I said, you know, I think from a policy perspective, could we've seen evidence 2016, 2017 that prices correlated negatively with that. But I think that, you know, we can have a world in which we can encourage foreign investment, but we need to encourage them to create housing, not destroy it. And that means creating programs where people can add a unit to an investment property. So foreign capital is encouraging the development of housing supply. So I thought that was interesting. I don't know when it's airing, but it's on CBC. Anyway, check it out. Stay tuned for that, guys. And we are going to be doing a, a much deeper dive on some of this new legislation, you know, the the Build More Homes Faster Act and, and the all of the stuff that, that's come out recently regarding adding units into a property. But let's move on to a, another trend that we're seeing highlighted in a few articles. Now, Dan, you and I are both millennials. And I'd say a lot of the people that we know and engage with are millennials as well. So this one kind of hits home. And the title of this article from Stories, another great media outlet, is Millennials Stuck Renting Homes Three to Five Years Longer Than Boomers Were. An analysis of 2021 census data collected in May of last year found that the number of renters in Canada hit an all-time high. Outpacing the growth seen in home ownership, renters increased by 22% while the number of homeowners jumped just 8%. It's not just urban areas that were seeing this high renter growth either. In fact, smaller cities saw a 22% jump in renters compared to larger cities with a slightly smaller increase at 21%. Interestingly, and perhaps surprisingly, when it comes to who's the fastest growing group of renters in Canada, it's actually baby boomers. Keep an eye on that one because that's a very interesting trend to be watching. Of the 5 million tenant-occupied dwellings recorded in 2021, 
22% were occupied by renters age 65 plus, a 3% jump from 2011. Now, home prices and aging population are the only driving forces pushing more Canadians to rent. Rising immigration is also fueling demand because newcomers tend to rent for the first five to 10 years of living in Canada and almost 1 million most recent immigrants, 56% of which were renting, which is nearly double the national average. It's crazy to think about is millennials are essentially waiting out or missing out on what is essentially a mortgage term, ideally their first mortgage term, right? Three to five years. There's a lot of us as well. Millennials make up 23.3% and actually outnumber baby boomers at 22.3%. So literally by 1% in Canada's six largest urban centers with a population greater than 1 million, including Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Ottawa, Gatineau, Calgary, and Edmonton. I think this one is interesting because you're getting, this is what's causing that upward pressure on rent. So you're getting millennials who would have been entering the housing market, who have a down payment saved up and who have a job that's good enough to pay for a mortgage on a monthly basis, given up on homeownership. And they're not just going to be homeless, they're going to go live somewhere. And now they're super flush with cash and they can afford a lot on a monthly basis. So these are tenants that have a high ability to pay rent and therefore pull rents up from the top, right? This isn't kind of the entry level pushing it up from the bottom. This is pulling it up from the top. This is where you're hearing about bidding wars and renting. This is where you're hearing about people prepaying a year's worth of rent because to just to get the place. And so interested to see how that plays up on the same token. And so for landlords, for, for those of us real estate investors here in the audience that you know are thinking about this, it's, these are opportunities in the market, right? Maybe you, you are getting a millennial who's prepaying with their down payment so they can save or prepaying the rent with their now not down payment so they can save up again for another year. And maybe that liquidity can create an opportunity for you in your next real estate investment. Similarly, baby boomers, a lot of them already owned a housing asset. And a lot of them are wanting to get out of that asset downsize. And downsizing often means financially downsizing, means house downsizing, but it also means maintenance downsizing. And so by doing that, they're wanting to go into rental tenure. They're selling the house. They don't want to deal with the crap anymore. They want you, the real estate investor, to be solving all of their housing problems for them. And I think that, you know, we've brought this up several times, and this is something that we're both see a major opportunity in is where are all the baby boomers going to go? So maybe we'll save a deep dive that for for another episode. Another little article I pulled here, and I'm going to read the first piece here because it's it's kind of painful. And I always make Dan read the, the negative stuff. So I'll take this one. This isn't even negative. This is reality. It just hurts to see. So the title of the article, again, from Global News is Millennials versus Baby Boomers. Why the cost of living has skyrocketed for young Canadians. The article reads, almost 30 years ago, Alice Sayant and her husband bought their first starter home in the suburbs of Winnipeg. The newly built 1,200 square foot home, three bedroom bungalow with 1.5 bathrooms and a big backyard. Perfect little starter home. The couple saved for around five years to put a down payment on the house of $82,000. Sorry, that's not the down payment. That's the purchase price. Yeah, and that's less than the down payment today. That's less than a down payment today. It was easier to get into a starter house back then, says the 60-year-old Alice saying, we actually paid less than the asking price because there was no bidding wars back then. And it was pretty common to put an offer in less than asking. 
1976, when the majority of baby boomers who were born between 1946 and 1965 were coming of age as young adults, it took a typically young person five years of full-time work to save a 20% down payment on an average-priced home in the greater Toronto area, Metro Vancouver, and many parts of Canada. For example, a millennial, someone born between 1981 and 1996, needs to work an average of 14 years in Canada, 24 years in the GTA, and 28 years in Metro Vancouver to put a 20% down payment on a house. Oh, man. So I guess I did make you read the bad stuff after all. (laughs) You know, this is why in our businesses and in real estate and mortgage transactions, we see so many millennials buying properties together, whether they're investments and you, you know, you get a couple of friends together and go buy a duplex or whether it's literally just trying to get into that first condo or that first starter home. We see a ton of millennials needing cosigners, not necessarily wanting cosigners, but needing them. Yeah, we call it cosign until you qualify. Cosign until you qualify. That's, that'll be on the next t-shirt. Now, in an effort to get through this whole episode here, let's move on and talk construction. This is a little anecdote from earlier, actually, because I had a call with one of our partners, Dan, who's a, who's a great contractor. He was actually going to go quote a house. And we just had a quick talk about what a new build home on a price per square foot cost would be. So I started to do a little research, obviously. And it looks like across the country, a house price varies province to province due to many different factors, but you can expect a price range to between $120 and $250 per square foot. Now, if you average this out across the country, it's about $185, approximately $375,000 to build a 2,000 square foot home in Canada. Now, I'm going to stop you right there before you jump in here because that is the national average. And I think that might even be a bit low because we've seen stuff in the GTA and Metro Vancouver and other more expensive markets with numbers starting at like $250 as the base and honestly going well over $1,000 even for condos now, which I find hard to believe. Yeah, it's the easiest way to... To find that information is just Google Altus, A-L-T-U-S, Canadian Cost Guide. They put it out and, and you can find sort of the, it give you a rough idea of what it costs to build all these different things. It's not just price that we're worried about, it's the building of them. Go check out episode 36, Housing Crisis, Building for 500,000 Immigrants. And this isn't a new problem either. From major energy projects to neighborhood housing, Canada has become a place where it's extraordinarily difficult to build anything. And that has to change. Canada ranks... 34 out of 35 in OECD countries in the time it takes to get a building permit. It takes nearly 250 days to get a building permit in Canada, three times or 168 days longer than our competitors in the United States. Wow. Think we like bureaucracy here? We thought the landlord tenant board was bad. This is this is brutal. So just to clarify what Dan mentioned there, OECD, that's the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. And it's an intergovernmental organization with 38 member countries founded in 1961 with a goal to stimulate economic progress and world trade. I don't know actually if it's uh, accomplished that goal. I think it's, if anything, it's just created a pissing contest on data that we share. It's like, who's the worst at X thing? And Canada stacks up poorly. I, I actually am wondering if they regret joining that OECD. It's a little embarrassing because again, as Dan said, we are 34 out of 35. And I know everyone wants to know who's the 35th, who's the only country that where it takes longer to get a building permit. The Slovak Republic is worse than us. So there we go. Anyways, Dan, we have some great data here about building permits. Let's just go over the last kind of five months of building permits here, national building permits that 
So what I'm going to do is I'll read the the month and the total. And for anyone listening, this is the total residential and non-residential applications and permits issued. So in June of 2022, we saw 14,870,000 permits issued. That's dollars worth of permits, by the way. Sorry, that's dollars worth of permits. Value yeah, that's of permits, not yeah. the, yeah, that'd be a crazy amount of permits. We And we'd it'd take 100 years to get anything done. Half a permit for every Canadian. <laughs> July 2022, $11,592,000 worth of permits. So a bit of a drop off there. Then we go into August where we see a bit of recovery, summer builds, 13624000 September 2022 dropped to $10.3 million in value of permits. And then we see a pretty sharp decline from the peak of the 14.8 in June, all the way down to a 9760000 in October, assuming those numbers have probably gotten worse. I mean, you know, we talk about this a lot on the podcast, that HOPE acronym, housing orders. So housing falls first, then the money that people spend on housing, which is your renovations, right? Residential investment starts to contract. So you're starting to see residential, residential investment contract in total. And then things start to follow after that. So profits start to decline and then employment starts to decline. And that's how you kind of wade through a recession. And then recovery happens in the same way. Housing starts to recover. The money people spend on housing starts to recover. Profits start to recover and employment starts to recover. If you're following housing as an investor, you see housing recovering. You can, you know, you can typically allude that or guess that you'll rem- you'll see the remainder of the economy recover thereafter. The one final piece that I'll that I'll add there is, you know, also think about these things as if renovations, if contractors are going to be less busy next year, maybe I should be putting off that renovation until next year so I can maybe save a little bit of money because construction costs are becoming a little bit deflationary now as well. Yeah, great points there. So look, we're here at the conclusion of this episode. You know, we we don't like to contribute to the the doom and the gloom out there that is essentially on every headline you see. I mean, I I spent a long time looking for some good news articles to to put in here, but there really wasn't any that I could find. But I will say this, and again, this goes back to the importance of your team and your network because when I was researching this episode, and seeing nothing but bad news, I was surprised. It got me down a little bit because I've had a bunch of good news recently from the investors within my network. So I still think there's good news out there. It's not the media reporting on it. It's you who have to make the good news and the people around you. Yeah, for sure. And I think good news that we're seeing in the market right now is people capitalizing on the bad news, right? They say when buy, buy when there's blood in the streets or be greedy when others are fearful. And I think we're starting to see that. And I think because we're a lot of it's because we're involved in that in that world a bit too, right? Totally, totally. And and I just I wanted to finish off this this piece with a quote that I think kind of hits home here. And that's hard times create strong people. Strong people create good times. Good times create weak people and weak people create hard times. I did not come up with that. That is from a book, but I think it's very important to look at where we are in this cycle, right? Hard times create strong people. Is that where we are? Are we coming off of the of the last little bit of a cycle of weak people creating hard times? And I'm not saying, you know, we are weak people or, or whatever. Don't read too much into this. But just in a general societal 30,000 feet look, right? We did create hard times for ourselves. 
not as individuals, but we have as a society created hard times for ourselves, but hard times create strong people. I plan on coming out of this recession better than I went into it. And I hope everyone listening does as well. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We'll see you soon. The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317, and a partner in GNH Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial, and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.